Welcome to The Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating professional biomedical and applied ethics at the University of Leeds. And welcome to another episode of the Idea Podcast. Today I'm joined by Panache Chinya. So Panache completed a master's in biomedical and healthcare ethics as an intercalating student last year. Uh, Panache, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Sarah. Um, yes, so I'm Panache. I'm currently a fourth year medical student. Um, I integrated in the biomedical um, ethics course last year and um, yeah, that's how I got introduced to the idea centre um, here at Leeds and um, I feel like I never left since then. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Um, so today you're going to be talking to us about your dissertation, so I'll hand over to you to talk us through uh, what that looked like and then you and I'll have a chat afterwards. Right. Um, yes. So my dissertation. Um, yes. Yeah, so I mentioned that I integrated last year, and as part of that course, I had to um, pick a dissertation topic and explore it in more detail. And the title of my dissertation was um, "More Enhancement," specifically looking at whether it can be a solution to racism in healthcare. Um, and essentially, um, I'll just run through my thought process throughout the planning and the writing, but also some of the arguments I used and um, present my conclusion as well. Um, so the question I was looking at was whether it would be actually justifiable to mandate more enhancement to solve the issue of racism and racially motivated implicit biases in medicine. And that sort of kind of um, came about a number of different ways, but one of them was that I was looking at whether there actually is a racism in medicine. And, you know, I found a number of articles that essentially just kind of shocked me a little bit, but didn't at the same time. Um, some of the stats that I found showed that actually white healthcare professionals are 61% more likely to be shortlisted or offered a post on their first or second go, like way more like compared to other ethnicities. And this was um, a finding from the Royal College of Physicians from a study they did in 2020. Um, another article found that actually black and ethnic minority staff are more likely to be formally disciplined. And this was like three times more likely. Um, this article again was written in 2019. Um, when ethnic minorities are patients, um, one study found that Asian women are twice as likely, or black women, they're five times more likely to die during the maternity period. So that's everything from the moment they realize they're pregnant to actually um, maternal health outcomes. And it even went into more detail about um, the outcomes of the pregnancy themselves. And you could just see the disproportionate health inequalities in, in those articles as well. But one that I found um, particularly shocking was one article by um, uh, Hoffman and his colleagues. And they were sort of looking at kind of like um, 
ideas of where racist thoughts begin or if if it's just uh, once people become doctors, nurses, um, midwives, radiographers, or these thoughts start earlier. And one of the things they found was that um, in this particular study, over 50% of the white male medical students they talked to believed that black people had like physiological abilities that meant that they could withstand pain better than other races. And that was quite interesting because, you know, I'm sure a lot of these people wouldn't consider themselves to be racist, but when they hold beliefs that are sort of like incorrect or kind of harmful in this instance, they can in turn affect how they treat their future patients. And so I was wondering whether more enhancement could be an idea to kind of mitigate these effects, mitigate these inequalities for both ethnic minorities as patients and ethnic minorities as um, sort of like workers or colleagues in the healthcare system. So the my conclusion and the main claim I was defending throughout the whole dissertation was that mandatory moral enhancement would be ethically justifiable, an ethically justifiable solution to racism. And um, if I could just kind of present my whole defense in the next minute so that if you don't want to listen to the rest of the podcast you don't have to but I highly encourage that you do but I was essentially arguing that when moral enhancement techniques have been deemed safe moral enhancement by my definition which I will go into in a little bit is ethically justifiable as a solution to racism firstly because racism and implicit biases are within the scope of moral enhancement also, we need it to be a mandate because that is the only way to assure that all inequalities that are caused by racism are eradicated. And also, I considered objections from a freedom, autonomy, and the personal identity standpoint, and I found that these were either weak or resolvable. Um, now, in this presentation, I'll only talk about freedom and autonomy because the personal identity one is huge. It's very huge, and I feel like I'd need the whole <laughs> other podcast just for those arguments but um to begin with anyway or kind of it's like the middle now I've already started but um I had to define what moral enhancement was and I chose to use my own definition for moral enhancement because when I when I started researching researching into it I found that um there's sort of like a dividing literature um there are people who believe that moral enhancement so improving people's moral behavior should be done by cognitive augmentation. And what they mean by this is essentially improve people's capacities for decision-making, make them better able to rationalize why they believe certain things or why they act certain ways, give them better information processing capacities so that they can make the morally right decision, right? So that's one camp. And then the other camps are saying, actually, you, we should improve people's moral behavior by emotional modulation. And emotional modulation sort of looks at um, augmenting the, the motivations to act, you know, the impulses. So I, I give this example of imagine I'm trying to resist or I'm trying to reach my goal of, I don't know, losing weight. And I'm trying to not eat cake you know if you were to if this was a particular moral decision let's say I'm trying to make um if you were to emotionally modulate me you know 
emotional modulation would be giving me the tools to resist the urges that make me go for that second slice of cake. Cognitive augmentation would be giving me the, the capacities to reason, well, you know, a second slice of cake doesn't really, um, it's not, doesn't really fall in line with the goals I want to achieve. And perhaps it's more rational if I'm just to have one slice today and maybe fit in another slice another time um, rather than eating or two slices today. But when I looked at it, I thought actually combining these two methods of improving moral behavior would be so much better because you're, you're guaranteed or you have a higher chance of actually improving moral behavior if someone knows why an action, a particular action is better than one than another, and also they're better able to actually pick that option. So I ended up defining moral enhancement as any improvement in an individual's moral behavior following an intervention that results in cognitive augmentation to improve their decision-making, reasoning, and information processing capacities and emotional modulation to heighten altruistic and compassion-based emotions that improve their motivation to behave morally. And this definition made so much sense to me, especially when I was trying to, um, to see whether racism is actually a moral issue. And the reason I wanted to investigate this was, you know, if you're going to deal with a, with a problem, it's better for you to to deal with it at its roots. I give an example of if I were to present in my in my GP or even at home, if I were to break my arm and I was getting so much pain from my broken arm, I could just, you know, take some paracetamol or maybe stronger pain meds and I'd feel better for a bit. But when that four hours runs out or whatever the time it takes for that medication, that pain would come back. A better solution would be to deal with the source of the pain, my broken arm, so that uh, this pain essentially can go away. And so if you think of racism in the same way, if we're trying to deal with the inequalities of racism, it's better that we address the roots of the racism so that the inequalities don't keep popping up. And so when I was um, trying to answer this question, is what are the roots of racism? I found two overarching ideas. Firstly, um, um, this one particular author, um, Garcia, who wrote a paper in 1996, she um, describes the root of racism as being sort of like emotions-based, you know, just hate or disregard for people of a particular race. Nothing, nothing too complicated about it. You just have someone who just hates someone else or a group of people right and that's particularly immoral she describes because she says it's not benevolent or just you know and um, and then you have another side of the of the table and um, someone an, an author actually called Shelby who uh, wrote a paper in 2002 and um, describes the root of racism as negative race-based beliefs and ideas and the idea behind it is that Racism actually a social contract co construct, but it doesn't make sense because you're you essentially are hating people or you are perpetuating inequality, I should say, based on um like unfounded grounds. And so, if we consider the definition I just said of more enhancement, you can see why it would be an appropriate solution to racism because 
we we don't know by looking at someone who we who let's say we know is racist that their root of racism is hate or their root of racism is based on negative race-based beliefs or their or they have both those roots but if our our technique of morally enhancing people aims to address both the emotional side and the cognitive side then it doesn't matter what root of racism someone has we can be assured that if our technique is efficient and safe then it should it should address both and so the next task was to justify whether a mandate is ethically justifiable and this is way more controversial now and now that we're talking about the covid vaccine mandates and and all of that but um i can <laughs> i picked this topic way before um that was even a thought but these are some of the arguments i used um, for moral enhancement to say that it's ethically justifiable as i said in my in my main claim earlier so firstly i used an argument by personal savilescu who essentially argued that if we're going to have effective results so if we're going to remove all inequality by moral enhancement this is this is me expanding on their idea then we have to make sure that everyone is not racist and if we take for example if we have a room of 10 people that we know are murderers and we more we um morally enhance all 10 of them to not be murderers it's not as simple as that but this is just a simple example to illustrate their point if we morally enhance all of them then we can be assured that of those 10 people there's no more murder that's going to be going on so essentially if we're going to remove all the inequalities in healthcare we have to make sure that caused by racism anyway we have to make sure that everyone in healthcare is not racist that's why it has to be a mandatory enhancement but not everyone agrees and that's understandable um rakic in his paper in 2014 argues that actually you're removing freedom of choice by putting a mandate you know it's better if the healthcare professionals get to choose whether they get enhanced or not but if we go back to our room of murderers if we put it out there that you know you can choose if you want to be enhanced or not to stop murdering people then we're not actually guaranteed that all 10 of them are going to come forward that's number one and it doesn't always work that way in the sense that um some people like in a in a normal room in a more realistic room we don't actually know who's a murderer who's a murderer or not um and so we are not assured that the people we really want to get the enhancement are the people who are going to come forward to get the enhancement so i had to take a different approach and essentially said well could we consider healthcare professionals without racism so those that have been morally enhanced um to not be racist as a public good public goods are things essentially that benefit everyone without discrimination and they're infinite so one person's not going to finish them for the next so everyone benefits equally and it's the point i'm trying to make and I, and i argued essentially that actually healthcare professionals without racism would benefit everyone so there would be a public good and i think this because 
everyone can be subject to racism. It's not just white people hating black people, black people hating Asians or vice versa or that, but actually everyone can be subject can be a subject to racism. So if you're assured that, well, my healthcare professional is not going to be racist, then you're more likely to actually just engage with the system. Um, so that's the first reason why we can consider healthcare professionals who are not racist to be a public good. They would it would benefit everyone. Um, secondly, um, a range of discriminatory behavior would be addressed. And what I mean by this is, um, moral enhancement is not a um, <laughs> it's not a like a specific solution for racism because there's no one bone in someone's body that we can remove through surgery and then they're automatically not racist but it's about people's emotions and their thoughts and their reasoning and and all of that so if we are improving people's capacities to reason better if we're giving people better tools to um resist their negative impulses then that should be applicable to other parts of their life or other discriminatory behavior. So I'll just give a common example. If someone was prejudiced against women, for example, we could expect an improvement in that person's behavior towards women because they're better able to rationalize some of their negative thoughts from before. And the third reason why I argued that healthcare professionals without racism should be considered a public good was that they would restore the public's trust in medicine. And for this argument in particular, I quoted a study, <clears throat> a study that showed that um, the reason there wasn't um, the best uptake uh, of the COVID vaccine from the black community in the UK is because there's simply just a lack of trust in the healthcare field now, if you're, and that's completely understandable if you go into, you know, the roots or the relationship between the black community and the healthcare field going back years, um, you can understand why perhaps that mis that lack of trust is there. Um, but if you were assured that every time you went to the doctor, your doctor would have your best interest at heart. Um, they're not going to treat you any differently than your, than the next person. They're going to listen to you. They're going to take you seriously. And you actually have a good chance of getting a good outcome um, based on, and not based on the color of your skin. You're more likely to engage, like I mentioned earlier. You're more likely to actually seek out and get help. And essentially that would, that would be good for everybody. Um, but I also <laughs> included an argument on the fact that we have a duty to do no harm. And I think that's partly the, the argument that's used for mandatory vaccinations as well. You know, there's some vaccinations that um, healthcare, um, healthcare professionals are um, encouraged to get, I should say, because it's not actually a mandate yet, but it does describe a way of making their, li their working life different if they don't have those vaccinations. So I felt like that argument could also be extended to um, moral enhancement. But after saying all of this, there's still some objections we have to consider because this is not a clear-cut so solution. Even now, I should say, after I finished writing it, 
um, I can see that there's so much more to be explored. But um, I just present one of the um, a couple of the objections that I considered in my dissertation here today. Um, so the first argument, or both of them actually, concern the nature of freedom. So the freedom to act. So if you are to be considered free to act, your um, action has to, what should I say, fulfill one of two characteristics, okay? So the first, the first criteria it has to fulfill is that your action has to be autonomous. So you have to choose to want to act a certain way for your action to be considered free. And John Harris, in his paper in 2014, um, argues that actually if we are morally enhancing people by emotional modulation, we bypass moral reasoning and essentially we remove the autonomy. So um, John Harris supports moral enhancement by cognitive um, augmentation. But because I chose a combined approach to moral enhancement, I believe that this should essentially address Harris's concerns. But I still talked about it a little bit more. And I used a study um, by two authors in 2019 who did um, who commented on a, an experiment that used external stimuli to the brain to essentially um, reduce people's impulses. So if you imagine, let's say, um, as an example, someone with an addiction and, you know, the nature of addiction is sometimes, you know, you act in ways you yourself don't want to act because of the hold the addiction has on you. So this external stimuli to the brain was essentially meant to um, help people reduce their impulses to act in accordance with um, like certain actions. Um, and it actually showed that what was meant to be cognitive augmentation, so an external stimuli to the brain, ended up emotionally modulating them by actually improving their the hold on their own impulses. And in essence, these people ended up having improved autonomy um, because they were likely to act in ways that they identified with. They were likely to act in ways they actually wanted to act as opposed to, um, as opposed to how they didn't, I guess. Um, so that's how I addressed that objection in a nutshell. I mean, there's so much more to be said, but I really could be speaking forever. Um, the second objection that concerns freedom um, concerns the second criteria, the second condition that you need to have a free action. So for an act to be considered free, like you have the freedom to act in any way, you have to have alternative choices to act that way. Um, and if if you just think about it, if I if you have a gun to someone's head and you force them to do something, you know, you would win in any court, any room. Um, they would win actually, sorry, in any court, in any room, the argument that their action wasn't free because they had no choice. You left them with no choice that either they died or they acted in the way you told them to act, right? Which makes which makes so much sense. And Harris, again, John Harris uses this argument of alternative choices to, to say that moral enhancement, again, by emotional modulation, would um, remove alternative choices for people. Um, I have a quote here. He says that autonomy surely requires not only the possibility of falling, but the freedom to choose to fall. 
And that same autonomy gives us self-sufficiency, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. And Harris here is simply saying that what makes um what makes people free is having the opportunity to be immoral, having or in our case, having the opportunity to be racist, you know, having the freedom to choose to fall or to stand, <laughs> I guess. Um but I argue that actually moral enhancement doesn't have to remove your choice of being a racist. Um, and I'll give you an example, one that was used again by President Savalescu. They found that naturally women are just more empathetic than men, like it's just a natural, a natural thing. But we don't consider that women are any less free than men. Um, well, <laughs> debatable, but in this case, we don't consider that women are any less free than men. And if we go back to like virtue ethics, if we're thinking of like virtuous people, it's not that they they don't have the option to do the less virtuous things, but it's just that it's not first nature to them to choose those things. And if we think of moral enhancement in the same way, we're not saying um, we're taking away healthcare professionals' um, ability or the, their choice to be racist or to perpetuate these inequalities, but we're saying moral enhancement will make them less likely to choose that choice in the same way as women are more are naturally more empathetic or virtuous people are just more likely to do the right thing. And so I'm going to end the arguments there um, because the next thing I go on to look at is the personal identity, but that needs its own show. <laughs> that needs its own hour and a half. And so, yes, um, just to remind everyone again about what I was arguing. So I was arguing that actually mandatory moral enhancement is an ethically justifiable solution to racism in healthcare. And I've presented some of those arguments on why I thought this way. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Panasha. You've actually, with that bit at the end there, answered my first question, which was going to be to uh, give us an elevator summary. So uh, what I'll do is I'll jump ahead then um, and ask, why did you choose this topic? Why was this something that you wanted to research? Um, that's a really good question Sarah um, and I actually didn't start off with this topic I was looking at something completely different but I just ended up ended up here but I think there was a number of influences that made me choose this topic so when we we're in lockdown during the period of my interpolation um, that's when the sad tragedy of George Floyd happened and that in itself empowered a lot more people to speak out about the inequalities they had faced and um, not only that, but some organizations actually took like an introspective approach to see if some of their practices were perpetuating these inequalities, right? And some reports, a lot of reports, some that I quoted earlier in the presentation came out um, about the healthcare system and found that actually ethnic minorities face a number of health inequalities when they're patients, inequalities when they're like colleagues, when they're working in the system, and in addition to this, um, like my own personal experiences and the experiences of um, those around me who are also in the healthcare field, it just sort of made sense. Um, and if you even look, um, I know we've been going through the COVID pandemic, but 
the COVID also brought another pandemic, and that was a pandemic of racism, I should say. And and we can see this by the increase in the hit in hate crimes, particularly against uh, people from Eastern Asia. And that discrimination, that hate, did not stop, you know, at the metaphorical doors of hospitals. The healthcare system was not spared from this. So I just thought to myself, as someone who's going to be work- working in healthcare. I felt a bit of responsibility and I I still feel this now that we have some responsibility to try and remove some of these inequalities for our patients and our colleagues. And so as part of the solution, I I considered more enhancement, which was a fairly new topic to me at that point um, during my intercalation. I actually got introduced to it um, during one of the modules on that ethics degree I talked to you about. Um, and I just found it really interesting. Um, when you think of like moral enhancement methods in themselves, they can vary. So I was I was just enjoying reading about the controversies and <laughs> all of that that surrounds moral enhancement, but also some of the benefits that moral enhancement can bring. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So you argue very convincingly for the position that mandated more by enhancement for healthcare professionals can be ethically justifiable as a means to resolve racial implicit bias and racism in healthcare. What do you think is the strongest counter to your position from a potential opponent? Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yes, this question. I think without a doubt, and I'd have to say it's the argument that's really popular among um, libertarians on negative rights. So, um, Sarah, I'm sure you know this, you like know everything ethics, but <laughs> um, rights can either be negative or positive. That's just one way of distinguishing them. But if we focus particularly on negative rights, they sort of like, their rights that warrant that the holder of the right should not be interfered with. And if we couple that with like, bodily integrity we're saying you know we have a right to not be interfered with our bodies you know like we have a right to not have things done to us that we don't want done to us um and so when when i think about this i take a very wide view approach to moral enhancement i i am happy with moral enhancement from like moral education but then when you think about it it ranges and it ranges to some really invasive methods so um, I think this is a strong argument in this case against my position because if we hold this right to not be interfered with, then some of the methods of moral enhancement can surely be seen to impede this right. So it would be like a balancing act on, you know, can we can we disrespect, I don't know if there's a better word, this right for the sake of removing these inequalities and yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Um, I would have loved to, and perhaps there's room for it in the future, to just um, add an extra long chapter in my dissertation about, you know, whether methods, methods of moral enhancement matter. Um, but yes, I think it is this, to answer your question, like, is this negative right to bodily integrity, I think. Brilliant. Thank you. I think that's a really, really good point. And as you say, that sort of impact on you know, can we infringe some rights in order to protect other rights? Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. In your um, dissertations and in your talk just now, 
you mentioned moral enhancement could be seen as a public good. Can you say a little bit more about that idea, please? Yes. Um, so just to like recap the idea of the public good, I guess, um, it's, it's one of the arguments I actually use as a response to the, to the previous questions. But yeah, if explain public goods are those um, goods in society that have to fulfill two criteria. So um, everyone has to benefit from them without discrimination and they like one person shouldn't be able to finish them for other people. And I give an example of every time I'm driving on the motorway, the M1 in particular, and you're passing through Sheffield, there's a bit where um, the speed limit is reduced to 60 miles per hour and it gives the reason on this big, huge board that um, it's because of the air quality. And I was like, well, that's really interesting because air quality then can be seen as a, an environmental public good, which is enough to restrict someone's freedom to travel at the actual speed limit of 70 miles per hour um, but for prioritizing air quality in this in this um, sense. So I was really thinking, well, if there are situations where we can prioritize some rights over other rights, could we um, say that mandatory moral enhancement for healthcare professionals um, is one of those situations. And um, like I just said, I argue that actually, yes, we can, because um, healthcare professionals without racism can benefit the public, the, the system, um, in a number of ways that I think are really, are really important. And just to re recap some of those reasons, I talked about how healthcare professionals without racism would benefit everyone because anybody can be subject to racism. You know, a range of discriminatory behavior also would be addressed because you're giving people the capabilities to reason their actions better, to make better decisions, to process information better, but also on the other hand, to actually um, be motivated to act better, which is like a really fun idea to think about. Um, and also that, it would restore the public's trust in medicine. And trust is very important um, for this healthcare professional patient public relationship um, because that's essentially how how medicine works. You know, um, people in medicine are really privileged to be sort of like let in into people's most private and personal details. And you don't want to do that with someone you don't trust. You don't want to do that with someone you think is not acting according to your best interests or will not do everything that they can to help you out, even though they have the capability to, right? And I think once you know that actually I'm guaranteed my, my doctor, my nurse, my, radio, my radiologist or radiographer, is acting in my best interest, you know, they're not looking at the color of my skin and that's not affecting their management or treatment for me, then you're more likely to engage. And that's what's really exciting because that will actually help to remove some of those inequalities I talked about earlier. So yes, it was a very, very fun idea to, to talk about. Fantastic, thank you. You mentioned uh, this, what I'm gonna ask you about now in your talk. So um, I suppose we'll build on that a little bit. I was wondering when I was looking over your dissertation if there were those parallels to be drawn between your central thesis 
and the arguments for vaccine mandates that we're seeing in healthcare, and that big COVID or otherwise. And obviously those are in place not only to protect the healthcare professionals, but also particularly to protect patients, especially when we're talking about COVID vaccines. Do you think that those two debates run together really closely or do you think they're perhaps a bit more distinct? That's a really good question. Um, I think, I don't know if you can tell me if this is a cop-out or not, but I think they are distinct um distinct debates but they're also parallel at the same time so the answer is yes and no and i'll explain why i think that you know um i like you mentioned i draw on the argument of the guidance that healthcare professionals should be vaccinated against um like at least a certain uh, like certain conditions so healthcare professionals for those who don't know they have like um i think it's called a green book but um happy to be corrected um, and essentially it has this guidance on a number of vaccinations that healthcare professionals should have right um, but it doesn't say that they must have it it just says that they should have it and it goes on to say that perhaps their roles may be adjusted a little bit let's say to say less patient-facing roles if they don't have those vaccines so we're changing their job description depending on whether they have these vaccinations or not and while should doesn't sound like a mandate you know it is a way of seriously encouraging people to get vaccinated because if you're going into a field expecting to be in a patient facing role and doing a certain thing and having that change because you haven't been vaccinated against something um that's that's a way of essentially mandating without saying mandating but in the same way um i think that can apply to moral enhancement because essentially the bottom line is saying you know prove you're not racist so that we don't limit your job privileges which sounds like what i just said about the vaccinations right um and it's because of patient safety, like you like you rightly said, you know, vaccinations or what I'm arguing, we're trying to keep the patient safe. So it's easy to see that if healthcare professionals have a duty to do no harm, then my mandate or the serious encouragement from our governing body, um, if it's if that's enforceable, then that can be applied to our mandate as well. However, I think they do differ in like quite significant ways um as well you know and it it all goes back to this methods issue i was talking about so the methods of moral enhancement and the bodily integrity argument you know moral enhancement doesn't have to involve bodily interference and that's because if you remember i said i support like a wide range of moral enhancement techniques and at the very at one left end is Things like diversity training, moral education, that doesn't have to involve impeding on people's negative rights. But vaccination almost always does because there's a thing happening to someone's body. And I think that minor detail is actually quite significant when you're considering the parallels of these two of these two um, debates. I don't want to go too much into detail into the COVID um, mandate because there's a lot that needs to be considered that needs to be considered to prove its ethical justifiability that 
I haven't done. Maybe I should write another dissertation. <laughs> but um, in the same in the same way, um, it is kind of comparable to some moral enhancement techniques. But these techniques, the ones at the right end of the spectrum that involve bodily interference or impeding on people's negative rights, those techniques are theoretical at best at the moment. Um, there's nothing um, that's out there that's like, yes, we can give someone a pill and change this or inject them with a brain chip. I don't know. There's, there's nothing like that at the moment for more enhancement. But with vaccines, these things are happening. So it's going to take years at best for some of these techniques for moral enhancement to be proved safe and effective, which you remember are my two caveats that this is only applicable and Monday is only applicable if it's safe and effective. Um, and for some vaccines that, that has been said, well, most vaccines actually that has been said, but yes, it's a very interesting topic and I really could go on about it, but the simple answer is, Yes, there's some parallels, but I believe there's some distinctions to be made as well. Brilliant. Thank you. So this builds on this a little bit, but I think this is an important question on its own merit. Uh, <laughs> I say it sort of links in with this a bit because I know there was a lot of concern when there was talk of bringing in uh, a vaccine mandate um, earlier this year that this would impact on recruitment and retention uh, in the healthcare sectors. And so I was wondering if we're talking about mandated moral enhancements, do you mm -hmm. think that that could potentially create a barrier to recruitment or retention in health services? And if so, is this something we should be concerned about? Mm, yeah, 100%. I think so. I think it would present a, a barrier. Um, and I think we saw that, like you just said, with the, the mandate issue, you know, um, People don't like to be forced to do things. <laughs> That's just the way human nature, human nature is. Um, but I think you know, like I answered the the last question, saying there are some distinct um, points about these two these two um, topics, I should say. Um, and I don't know. I think if more enhancement. At the basis of it all, you know, more enhancement is trying to improve people's morality, right? You know, we're trying to say, don't use the color of a person's skin, their, their ethnicity or their their background to determine the type of care that they receive or whether they, like, progress in their career or not. And I think, I would hope these are some of the values that healthcare professionals or people who want to go into healthcare also uphold. And so... I don't know, I guess, because you'd have to ask yourself if someone doesn't believe that exploring whether they they have, um, like, discriminatory practices, um, if they don't want to do that, what does that say about the care they're going to give? So in in terms of your second question about is, is, is this something we should be concerned about, I would say maybe, maybe not. Um, because at the, at the bottom of all, we're just saying, you know, we don't want racism, or I'm just saying, we don't want racism in healthcare, um, and this is our method of not having racism in healthcare. And then if people are saying no to that, is that saying, actually, I support the inequalities caused by racism in healthcare, that's why I don't want me or any other people to um, change that. 
um, I think at the very least, anyway, um, healthcare professionals should try and accept, you know, the the methods I talked about being left on the spectrum. You know, just things like moral education, diversity training, regular follow-ups. You know, um, like methods of moral in education that I believe can lead to more enhancement, but perhaps may also mitigate some of the concerns they have about the more invasive methods. Brilliant, thank you. I think you're quite right that it effectively sort of feeds into your previous point about, well, this is surely going to depend on what moral enhancement looks like. And so people's objections around retention and whether, you know, what their reasons are for rejecting uh, moral enhancements may perhaps come down to what moral enhancement looks like in their case. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So just to sort of build a little bit on that and on your central thesis more broadly, are there other mm -hmm. professional fields that would warrant mandated moral enhancements to solve the issue of racism and racially motivated implicit biases? Or is healthcare a special case? Oh, <laughs> I think I, I picked health, the healthcare field in particular because that's just the one that's closest to my heart, right? That's just the one I'm in, I'm going into. Um, but I think this has, um, like, this can have applications everywhere. Because if I rephrase your question, maybe, and say, um, are, where are there any other racial inequalities? Like, what other fields, what other departments are racial inequalities present? then we will find our answer because essentially where this racial inequality, this method moral enhancement would be applicable, right? Um and you don't you don't have to go far to look, you know, just open your news and I'm sure there'll be there'll be something. Um so I guess um I just picked it because it's, it's closest to my heart, but I think it it can be applied to other other places as well. Great, thank you. Do you think that the sort of deciding factor might be, because you mentioned that, you know, where there is racism in a particular field, but do you think there's perhaps a stronger argument to be made where there's that racism, but it's impacting people perhaps out of the field? So in healthcare, it's impacting on the patients, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And I think it goes back to just the role that healthcare professionals play in people's lives. Um, what we do affects a lot, you know. Um, I know sometimes it may not seem like it, and certainly I'm still a student, so don't I don't have that much experience. But our interactions with people leave a lasting impression and determine how they will engage in the future, how their friends, family, um, or even their health outcomes as well. So perhaps that's a special case in a sense because yes, um, we are having sort of like these extra effects on other people. It's not just on us anymore, but we're kind of like um, putting things on other people almost, just like, just like how we put it. Brilliant, thank you. I'd like to push that even further if I may then, because mm -hmm. we, as you quite rightly pointed out, we don't have to look very far at all to find fields where there are issues around racism and where there can be knock-on effects from that racism from that racism to people who are 
you know, not directly in that field. So like with healthcare and patients, as we say. So mm -hmm. is there an argument to be made then perhaps for universal mandates of moral enhancements to try yeah. to solve the issue of racism and racially motivated implicit biases? So the public at large. Perhaps I think I think it's a it's a case by case, to be honest. Um I certainly used an argument that I mentioned earlier, the one by the person in Sabalesco who's saying that actually if we're going to have effective results, it has to be universal. Like they, they support universal moral enhancement. Um but and I applied it to to my field. Um but it it raises some questions, you know, when you have universal moral enhancement and Again, I keep going back to this methods issue, like methods of more enhancement. I think at the very least, just like I suggested for healthcare professionals, they should be like mandatory, like diversity and culture training, you know, implicit bias awareness courses, um, like a look into like structural causes of inequalities. And then we can proceed more to the more more controversial, for lack of a better word, more controversial um, methods. But I think when those things are mandatory, like if if we grow up being taught that you know diversity is an important thing and it's a good thing, then by the time those people end up being doctors, nurses, midwives, then it's already part of their practice. They already not um, essentially well, perpetuating inequalities based on race. So the answer is it's case by case. Perhaps it, it would be better to start with less invasive methods while we try and defend or try and see whether invasive methods can can be used appropriately. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so that brings us to my final question, which you've already touched upon uh, a little bit while we've been chatting. But mm -hmm. are there further questions raised by your conclusions that would warrant further investigation or research? Uh, yes, um, I think I'll go back to my favourite weapon, my favourite word for this um, for this talk, rather, in that methods. I would I would love to look into whether methods matter. I would love to look into whether my arguments would still stand on more um, invasive methods of moral enhancement, or actually it doesn't matter. Um, and look into what can actually practically be done, you know, because um, like I mentioned, some of it is very theoretical at the moment, but what can we actually do? Because these inequalities in, in healthcare are very, are very much like, right, they're, they're going on right now and they need a solution. Um, but I think also um, I would love to look into um, whether there are disadvantages to being to being overly moral or to everybody being moral. Um, and certainly this comes from, you know, the argument I mentioned where um, I use the example of women being naturally more empathetic than men. Um, I received a question during one of my presentations and um, someone asked, well, you know, having too much empathy sometimes is no good thing. It's certainly been shown in healthcare that the doctors that are more empathetic are more prone to burnout um, and to suffering adverse effects of the job on their, on their emotional well-being. And so would that be good if everybody was um, overly empathetic or 
really good would that would that be good for our healthcare system and i think that's a very interesting point to look into further um and also i'd love to see if more enhancement can address um structural racism so um i was focusing mainly on individuals in this dissertation but i know that individuals are the ones that make up institutions and structures you know um structural racism is not just about the chairs and the building <laughs> it's actually it has nothing to do with that but it has everything to do with the people that are making the policies the rules and you know um making these environments or promoting certain cultures within the workplace that prove to be racist and so i think um looking to that further would be would be quite interesting to see whether that can be applied or maybe just morally enhancing the individuals would solve the structural aspect and um lastly i think i would say i talked about how one of my caveats was if more enhancement techniques have been deemed safe but what what does that mean what what's what's safe because as we've seen people disagree on the most basic of things um sometimes um sorry i was going to then say even in philosophy you know you have people who sub, um subscribe to like utilitarianism or different philosophical theories and what i might consider safe might not be safe for the next person so i thought that would be an interesting point to look at to whether can we reach a point where we can say this is safe safe for everybody and everybody would agree although i don't know i don't know if that's a i'm just being overly optimistic but yes this this topic is still very much um open i think i barely scratched the surface so yeah I think that's one of the the joys but also the curses of moral enhancement isn't it that it's so to an extent hypothetical or a lot of it has the potential to be hypothetical so there's all these moving parts that you try to account for but I think you did that really really well in your dissertation thank you so much Sarah yes you're you're so right this is how um you end up staying in the idea center forever <laughs> <laughs> uh but there are worse ways to spend eternity so <laughs> Uh, on that uh, note, I want to give a huge thank you um, to you, Panasha, for joining me uh, and chatting. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. The IdeaPod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by George Armitage.